From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serra. Thanks for inviting me into your home. Long-haul truck, RV, camper, taxi, your parents' well-appointed rec room with a simulated wood paneling, electric fireplace, and the painting of dogs playing poker. Your loft, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. Victor Vigiani from Zeland News Network stays with me. James Fox, ufologist, filmmaker, director of The Phenomenon, has left us. But Victor and I will carry on this hour discussing the film and UFO disclosure in general. Before I get back to Victor, just a reminder that if you enjoy The Conspiracy Show, check out my podcast, Conspiracy Unlimited. New episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Go to conspiracyunlimitedpodcast.com, conspiracyunlimitedpodcast.com to listen and subscribe. The most recent 30 episodes are free. You can become a premium subscriber for less than $2 a month U.S., and that will give you access to the back catalog, which is over 430 episodes. Plus, you get two commercial-free episodes per month. And to become a premium subscriber, go to conspiracyunlimitedpodcast.com and click on Gain Access to Premium Episodes, and you can sign up. All right, Victor Vigiani is uh, back. Again, the, the executive director of Zeland Communications and Zeland News Network, and uh, a retired school principal from Toronto, has been studying anomalous aerial phenomena for over 30 years. His experience involves UFO sightings, report investigation, counseling work with individuals, reporting anomalous experiences, presentations and journalisms in the field of ETI disclosure issues. Uh, Victor, welcome back, and thanks for hanging out for the full two hours. Oh, it's a pleasure, Richard, to be with you. And uh, take off on the last hour. My goodness, where do we go from there? I'd like to, you know, go back over some of the things that we touched on and maybe in a little bit more detail. One of the things, I, I mentioned that Jacques Vallée uncovering that letter in Dr. J. Allen Hynek's vast library of documents, and I guess Heineck didn't even realize he had it, but this was that letter that uh, supposedly changed Valet's life, and and James Fox touched on it, but he didn't go into too much detail, and I won't either, except to say that this letter revealed what can only be described as an ultra-secret government investigation into UFOs. It was unknown to all but a few, and it indicated, uh, I think it was Patel Memorial Institute Right. where they were studying these exotic metals. It was someone, I think his name was H.L. Cross, was studying these exotic metals and uh, basically you know, con- concluding they were not likely of this world. I mean, that's I can see how that letter would change his life. Well, when you look at the kind of research that was done on those metals, the doctor, what was his name? No, the last name was Nolan, I believe it was. What they found is that these exotic materials, for lack of a better word, exhibited ratios of isotopes. And I'm not a physicist at all. I mean, just, I'm looking at you know what the what the findings were. The isotope ratios did not make any sense when they analyzed everything to the very very basic particulate matter of what these particles were. It's something that they'd never found before, and it also leads into the argument, or at least the perspective of the czar. He found this element 115. Now, the question is, what's the relationship between what Bob Lazar found with element 115 and the isotopic anomalies that uh, Dr. Nolan found? If this material is, in fact, 
unknowable on our planet or even in any part of our own solar system. That, to me, indicates that whoever has sort of made these craft of unknown origin crash or, or and then us find what these things are made of, it's an indication that we are finding out who and what these people or these beings are all about. I think that's what it points to. I mean, you can examine the particles and go for days and days and days to examine what these things are. But what the fact of the matter is, it points to the fact that we have craft of unknown origin coming from someplace else, either you know, in our own solar system or our own cosmos someplace, or, lack of a better word, interdimensional. I don't want to get into that just yet. But if this material is not of any known substance that we have, and we're extending the periodic table into materials that we don't know about, what does that say about what this issue is all about? You can't deny the fact that whatever these crafts are, call them UFOs, UAP, they are definitely not from here. And extending that argument, the mainstream scientists have to admit that we have to find out a bit more about that and shed this whole notion of, well, this can't possibly happen. Well, it is happening, and it's here. It's right in our lap. And, you know, Jacques Vallée, has, as someone who spurred my interest in all of this, Richard, I know back in 1975, I was at a bookstore just browsing, and I picked up his book, and I don't know why I did it. My wife was shopping, doing something else, and I, I was browsing. I went into the store, and I saw this book, Revelations, by Jacques Vallée. I had no idea what that book was or meant. Or, and I picked it up, and I read the forward to it, and I said, my goodness, this sounds really interesting. And this is in 1975. And then from there, I brought that book back home, back to the cottage, and I read it. During the summer, I read the book, Richard, four times. I couldn't digest it all in just one or two readings. So Jacques Vallée has done something here. He's brought forward a whole new realm of understanding about what this exotic material might be. And who knows where this is going to lead us in terms of what mainstream science could do to propel some sort of acknowledgement that these craft are not from here, and where do we go with that information? What do we do with it? And how will the general public understand it? Right. You mentioned Dr. Nolan, and this is the analyzing of these exotic materials that's going on right now in Silicon Valley with uh, Dr. Vallee and Dr. Nolan. And these are materials that Vallee has collected over the years from alleged UFO crash sites. And I think Nolan referred to them as ultra-material Right. And you're right. The, the again, I'm not a a physicist <laughs> certainly, and I don't even play one on the radio. But I think <laughs> he mentioned there is evidence of 253 different isotopes contained in these materials, whereas we use about 83. That's right. Know, right. Yeah. 83 isotopes. So 253. So again, the conclusion was manufactured, not natural. Not now, not necessarily off planet, but still manufactured not natural. Right. Other points in the in the film, uh, in the phenomenon, that really kind of shook you up? I've seen Out of the Blue, and I saw James's film, I Know What I Saw, and they were excellent. They were, in so many different ways, just riveting. But with this particular film, and the way it struck me was, and listening to how uh, James put things together over time, we spent some time on a, a group interview on Facebook with Grant Cameron about three weeks ago. There was about six or seven people involved in this, and Grant put this together. 
And it was the first time, I think, that James had had a chance to really kind of expound very, very informally on, on what he had done. And it was very and, um, you know, instructive for me to see not only the depth to which James had gone to put this all together, but the physical toll and the mental and emotional toll it took on him. And what it showed me was that he has dipped his finger into an inkwell and the stain of which it's not going to ever be removed. He will be placed in history. And I, I can guarantee you that this particular film will set a benchmark for anyone who has any kind of interest in finding out what this issue is all about. And not just the people who have a, a deep interest in it. There is so much there for them, too. But it's also a benchmark for people who... Can you imagine putting this in the hands of someone who knows nothing about the issue or getting a good journalist who has an inquisitive nature and say, you know, would you have a look at this and see where you want to go with it? This phenomenon, this film, the phenomenon, could be a real headwhip for a lot of people to find out that there's much more to this. And somebody out there, some people, some level of species out there is doing things that we just don't understand. And the sooner we come to grips with the fact that this is actually happening and we move it into the mainstream science and mainstream journalism, the better people will understand that they've got to move away from the kitchen table and stop you know, absorbing some of the information that's being foisted on them about the regular reality that we're in. And they have to remove themselves from that reality. And I've done that over the course of my investigations. I continuously remove myself from the reality that I'm in. And we have to do that to a certain point. This sounds very esoteric and everything, but if, if, if you keep on thinking along the same lines all of the time, you put yourself in a straitjacket. Eventually, you have to, if you have any kind of inquisitive nature to yourself at all, you have to move beyond what our emotional and physical and, and, and neurological confinement does to our own reality and move beyond that. And once you move beyond that and begin to accept the fact that there are things going on beyond our reality, that's the key. Understand that our reality is not the total sum of all realities. Now, has the phenomenon moved us towards that? I think it has. It's done it in a way that's informational. It's done it in a way that's factual. It's done it in a way that's extremely emotional. I would dare anyone to watch the last 20 minutes of that film uh, with respect to the aerial school children. And now as adults, what they went through, these children were standing one meter one meter from beings from another world. Like, how do you internalize that kind of information, and what does it mean to us? And if it just is becomes something as, well, it's the same thing as crossing the street against a red light or whatever, I mean, you really don't get the fact that this is important. But if you internalize the fact that some of these children, two or three of them, actually said they stood one meter from a being from another world, I mean, Richard, what does that mean? That's, exactly. that's a question well, that, yeah. And, and for those maybe joining us later not familiar with the aerial school in Zimbabwe, this was in 1994, and you had, I believe, there were something like 66 children who witnessed this and some teachers, mm -hmm. and uh, these craft, they landed in the schoolyard or adjacent to the schoolyard, entities got out, as you say, some children were less than three and a half feet away, staring mm -hmm. into their eyes. 
And then James Fox did something quite remarkable. He brought those students, a number of them together again, 20 years later, to recount what they had seen. And again, they were adamant. Their story didn't change at all. Mm-hmm. They, you could tell that exactly. they were they're very emotional. I think mm-hmm. after looking at this movie, this documentary, The Phenomenon, for someone who's not familiar with the issue, it's really the only documentary you need to see. I think James did such a great job. He did two things. He brought everything together in an hour and a half that gives you this crash course in the UFO issue since 1947 to the present day. But at the same time, for those of us that are a little more immersed in the issue, there was a lot of new stuff there too. I wasn't aware, for example, of uh, the 1959 Papua New Guinea case where a missionary saw this craft along with 38 other witnesses. And there's enough of that in the film for, you know, for diehards and even better known cases like the Socorro, New Mexico case. As I mentioned to James, he did a great job on putting some meat on them bones because that's a case that kind of gets glossed over uh, Mm -hmm. typically when it's covered. But again, he interviewed Socorro's wife, or sorry, um, um, Larry's wife, the, uh, uh, the the deputy that saw it, uh, the the craft that landed. He interviewed his partner. Uh, we we actually go to the landing site. We see raw footage. I hadn't seen that footage before, where we see the the imprint the craft made when it touched down. Had you seen that that uh, that footage before? No, I haven't. That that's totally new to me. Right? And, have you uh, have you had a, have you have you ever heard from Lonnie? Uh, Zamoro's wife before? No, not not, not in the depth that that James did. He, that, that you're exactly right, uh, Richard. He, he's 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 um, he's got to some things that even some of the more um, astute um, uh, UFO researchers and historians they're they're shaking their heads and asking the question: Where did he get some of this stuff? I mean, th- this is ap- he's got he's got footage of James McDonald, uh, a scientist who was, was ridiculed severely, he's got tape and, uh, you know, film of him actually on film saying certain things that I've never heard before. So you know, anyone who has any doubt about the severity and the intrusiveness and the authenticity of this film, if, the, if you've got any doubts about it, watch it and you will be totally convinced that what James Fox did was absolutely incredibly incisive and, and research beyond the pale. Absolutely, the the um, the Papua New Guinea case. Uh, for people who who are not familiar with it, there are people are are. There's a small school. I'm not sure exactly how many children were involved, but there was a missionary there with several children. There could have been up to twenty five or thirty. They were standing on the shore, and they saw this craft hover out over the water. It was a large craft, had lights on around the side, and then it came in so close that the children actually saw beings, four beings, standing around the outside or at least within uh, windows within this craft. They actually saw the beings in the craft hovering yes. over the water. Yes, and it's or on just top, like, perhaps even on top of the craft. Exactly, exactly. Now, <laughs> you've got a missionary, you know, a, a man of the cloth, so, so to speak. Why would this fellow bring forward something like that if, he, if it wasn't something true? And absolutely T-R-U-E, true, with children. There's no reason for him to fabricate this kind of information. So James has done a great job in bringing these things to the forefront. And not only bringing them to the forefront, but putting them in a really incredible historical context 
that leads us up to the current state of affairs with, you know, the TikTok videos and the, you know, the ATIP program and, you know, Harry Reid and all of that. What he does is connected the dots so much more uh, authentically than anything that I've ever seen before in, in, in my experience. It's just he hit he hit the ball right out of the park. I, I would agree. Uh, we're going to continue to talk about the film, but also we'll talk about uh, d- disclosure in general. And uh, we'll o- also open up the phone lines and we'll make those available to listeners right now. 416-360-0740. That's in the greater Toronto area. 416-360-0740. And toll free from just about anywhere. one 866 740-4740-1-866-740-4740. We were talking about some of these landings, uh, UFO landings in uh, near schools, and the other one was uh, Westall, uh, which is um, in Australia. This happened in 1966. And again, a number of witnesses. These were, uh, I, I believe, older children, if I'm not mistaken, than the the children at the uh, aerial school in Zimbabwe. Mm-hmm. Um, interesting uh, segment, though, in the film where a science a teacher who had never come out publicly and spoken before finally spoke out, uh, wished to remain anonymous, but uh, had, had an interesting story to tell. Do you remember that? that episode? Yeah, the, the, yeah the, the, the interesting part of that, it was 1966, I believe. And I believe the the number of students we're talking several hundred students at this point. And this is the way the uh, James characterized it. And the the actual witnessing of what went on was so um, enthralling that these children were affected to an emotional state. And I've done some uh, you know uh, talking to people in Australia because I spent some time there. The children that were um, that were that, that saw this that witnessed this. Uh, they're, they're adults now, of course, as you know, back in 1966, they were so emotionally um, distraught uh, and 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 completely perplexed by what went on. There is there is a lot of um, uh, I, I'm not going to call it mental illness. There wasn't, but some of these people went into almost like a, in a, an emotional cascade fe- uh, failure because they couldn't understand what they were seeing and why they were seeing it, the, the craft that they saw. And then, uh, as you said, the the teacher that came forward, he was also extremely ridiculed at the time for even uh, bringing it forward. And then he shut up. He just stopped talking about it. He didn't want to deal with it. He couldn't deal with it. Uh, But at some point, um, I'm not sure exactly how far it was along into his career or after he retired, he decided to come forward. And he he dealt with it. He brought some closure to it. So this kind of stuff that happens on a personal level, and to me, as a former educator, and you know, a principal of schools, I can well appreciate the kind of impact that this would have had on a school community. I mean, you know, I've been a principal of a school, you know, with 500 children in it, and you know, you have these children experience something like that. I don't know, Richard, how I could even possibly deal with that kind of incident. I mean, you deal with the regular things that happen in a school on a day-to-day basis, and that's very difficult. You know, right. Children come and go, there are problems, and all of the emotional and sociological things that happen with children, and the, the you know, learning disabled children. You know, and then you, you have a, you know, a craft of unknown origin come and land on the field exactly. close to your school. 
My Victor. goodness, how do you, you just don't call you just don't call recess, okay? <laughs> Victor, we got to take a, a time out. We'll come back and uh, delve further into UFO okay. disclosure and James Fox's latest film, The Phenomenon, right here on the Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. You're listening to the Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. We're back with Victor Vigiani from Zealand News Network and Zealand Communications. We're talking about James Fox's latest film, The Phenomenon. Uh, James uh, joined us earlier for the first hour. People can screen that. Go to thephenomenonfilm.com, thephenomenonfilm.com, or go to strangeplanet.ca, and under tonight's show information, you'll see the film listed there. Just click on that. That'll link right to the website, thephenomenonfilm.com. We were talking about the Westall 1966 UFO incident in Australia, we were talking about that science teacher who finally, for the first time, spoke out publicly after holding this in for 54 years. And you were wondering, as a former educator, a retired school principal, how, you know, how how difficult that must have been. But he, he was, I believe, visited by a couple of uh, Air Force officials who who warned him that if he ever spoke out about it. He would be reported as a, uh, a drunk. They were going to concoct some story, uh, and they would get him fired right quick. Do you remember that? Yes. He was, he was very clearly told that, that uh, he should not talk about this again, and they actually accused him of being drunk, according to, according to what, um, what the James's film said. And I, I, what I guess it points to, uh, Richard, is the fact that Whatever the security networks that are in place um, uh, are and what they have um, control over are so insidious that they could reach down into a community like that, go to a school, sit down with a teacher and say, you did not see what you saw. And if you do come forward to say what you saw, we will discredit you to a point where you will have nothing left in your career. Now, how insidious is that? And this is not the first time this has ever happened. This happens with, uh, you know, in my conversations with Robert Salas, uh, the, the nuclear installation um, the launch commander. And, you know, Bob and I have a very close relationship. And, and the depth of, of, of concern that he's expressed continuously about what happened to not only him, but to his security guards and to everybody else who's been a part of the witnessing of UFOs over nuclear installations and how government officials have forced these these um, Air Force officials to just stay quiet. Uh, it, it is absolutely mind-boggling the extent to which the national security um, uh, element within the United States government is so uh, in control of this, or they think they are so in control of it, that uh, people are afraid to, for, you know, incarceration, loss of their pensions, and just, you know, personal uh, discreditation. So the level of, of uh, negativity surrounding this makes sure that this stuff does not get out. And they've done a pretty good job of it, really. Well, you're right. It's one thing for someone in the military to be told not to talk about it. But I, I think it was in the Westall uh, school case in 66 in Australia. The children mm -hmm. were called into an assembly. I don't know if there were any uh, uh, sort of military type officials there, but they were certainly told by their, te their teachers, you didn't see anything and you're not to talk about it. Right. <laughs> You're not, you didn't see anything, and you're yeah. not to talk about it, that, which is kind of ironic. I could just <laughs> imagine being, being, 
<laughs> I can just imagine me as a sub. I've held many assemblies in my in my days of school, you know, gathering together 500 children in the gym and saying, "Okay, folks, um, you didn't see what you saw, and here's how we're going to handle that." Uh, I, I just you know, I cannot imagine myself being put in that kind of position. Uh, both knowing what I know now and even knowing what I know then, uh, I would have jumped up and down and had the media there at the school to interview every single child. I don't know, but that's just me. <laughs> All right, let's uh, go to the phones, and Skip is joining us from Connecticut. Skip, welcome. Yeah, hi. Very interesting discussions. I have two questions. One would be the premise that all this unfolded to where the government has a monopoly on this information, you know, like that idea of, you know, tip of the iceberg. Uh, it's got, uh, why would, that would almost indicate that these beings are communicating with our government and they're not telling us. And the second thing, the fact that there's been some crash sites tells me it's probably not coming from interstellar space. If the crash were that uh, superstar, they they wouldn't crash, I, I believe. Yeah, you, you've you've Skip, you've hit two nails right on the head. Let's deal with the first one. Um, your your first point was regarding a government uh, knowledge of this. Uh, let's move that forward a little bit. And um, James does um, approach this issue in the film. Most of us feel that, um, or a lot of researchers and people in the general public feel that this is a government-military issue within the United States government. But I think within the film, uh, the and, and other uh, researchers have said this, that gradually over time, for some reason and somehow, the United States government has done a soft handoff to corporate entities, to private sector corporations, to give them information or allow them to be exposed to certain levels of, of, of declassified and classified information so that this information is now in the private sector. And in a very gingerly soft way, government is kind of backing off a little bit on this, leaving it in the private sector and allowing for the private sector to move this stuff forward. Now, I talk about Robert Bigelow. We're talking about the Rand Corporation, uh, General Electric, uh, and, um, Johnson Control Systems. These are all corporations who have been given information about this stuff. And that allows the American government to take a step back and say, well, we really don't know what's going on. It's all in the private sector, which leads to the to the point of you know, plausible deniability in terms of uh, acknowledgement or disclosure, which we'll get into later on. Now, your second point regarding crashes, it, it, to me, it indicates that some of these uh, civilizations or some of these craft or some of these entities are in some way vulnerable or, or they have weaknesses just like we do. Uh, if, if these craft are as you know sophisticated as some people say they they shouldn't be doing they shouldn't be crashing, but something about the, either their composition or the electromagnetic uh, systems around the pl our planet or or some dysfunction within their own craft are causing them to to crash, and you have to ask the question why, and where are the crashes? What happens to them? And what happens to the bodies? So these are all unanswered questions that I think that um, either the government has to eventually come forward on or the corporations have to deal with it because they have somehow uh, commandeered some of the, the, the materials, as Rich and I were talking about earlier. 
there's a whole lot of unanswered questions around all of this, and that's why I think the uh, the journalistic community should really kind of step up their their act and get into finding out why this is happening. Skip, thank you for the call. Uh, you're right, and you know newspapers everywhere are failing. Uh, they are trying to come up with some sort of a business model. You know whether it's paying for content online, which is going nowhere. After right. people have had free content for decades, now they expect people to pay. That's not going to happen. This might be their answer, is mm. to, to to start paying attention to this issue and writing about it and employing some of the same journalistic practices they apply to City Hall and the provincial budget to this very issue. I'm serious. I mean, Richard, their readership would explode. Richard, please do not get me going on this one, okay? This is This is something that's... A stone in my shoe, not a pebble in my shoe. It's a stone in my shoe. We can see that the newsprint industry is collapsing. Everybody knows that. Uh, the Toronto Star, the National Post, uh, they're all posting things, you know, boost up and, you know, this is solid journalism. Give us, a, give us the credit we're due. What they're doing is hiding behind a facade of, of, um, of, how, how can I put it? I'm not going to call it fake news because it's not fake news. It's 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 fabricated news. There's a difference between fake news and fabricated news. Uh, and we talk about all the things that are going on uh, that are so ephemeral in their in their effects on us on a daily basis. That if they were to choose some really key writers and have them spend three months investigating this stuff, these newspapers could publish online and both in, in, in newsprint, they could publish articles that would change the public mind within three to four weeks on this issue. And I'm not exaggerating. There's so much and out there's, there. Yeah. And there's enough going on that, that they, could, they, could, they could dine out on it. it. They could fill an entire front section of the newspaper or, or have a separate section of the newspaper. Uh, they could have uh, assign someone that that is their beat. You have a Queens exactly. Park Bureau. You could have a UFO Bureau. Uh, well, if they're if they're smart, you know, just simply from a profit motive, they should be looking at that. Uh, let's go to the um, uh, the YouTube chat. Solar Warden asks, "Are you familiar with the sighting of Chris Gibson in the North Sea of the black triangular craft in 1989 while working on an oil rig? He was a Royal Naval Corps observer." Uh, thoughts on the uh, on the Chris Gibson sighting? I, I'm familiar with it a little bit. Uh, this is a, a Scottish exploration engineer, mm-hmm. yeah. and um, saw this unknown craft. Anyway, are you familiar with that? I'm not, not at all. I have to admit that I'm not familiar with that one at all. I am familiar with the black triangle, the uh, TR three Bs. I'm familiar with the uh, with the, that kind of craft and that whole kind of concept, but I'm not particularly familiar with that particular incident in was it 19 uh, 1989 august of 89 yeah, yeah there yeah. is some some speculation uh that it that, that this triangle might have been what they call the um an aurora hypersonic spy plane tr3b it, it, tr3b it may be one of those we've got to take a time out we'll be back in a moment the conspiracy show continues right after this Providing the evidence and letting you draw your own conclusions. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett. Let's go to the phones, and it's Kathy in uh, St. Catharines. Kathy, welcome. Hi, gentlemen. I've got two questions. The first 
is when these UFOs appeared at the schools in Africa and Australia, did they try to kidnap any of the children? And second, do you think God was a space alien? All right, Victor. To my knowledge, there were no uh, attempted abductions of the children, although several children in the aerial school in Zimbabwe in 94 it seems to be they hinted at some telepathic communication and they felt like they were being sort of invited to go with them, but there was nothing, no one taken by force. Well, thanks for your questions, Kathy. Excellent question. Um, Let's take the aerial school to begin with. My experience with that has been very direct because I've had, I spent three days with Dr. John Mack at his office in the Harvard School of Psychiatry in 1996. In his assessment and his interaction with the children, he went down there and interviewed, I'm not sure how many, I I think he interviewed seven or eight of the children. None of them ever alluded to the fact that they were uh, taken or taken aboard ships, experienced missing time or anything like that. This happened all in real time. Uh, None of the children actually expressed any kind of indication that they were taken. Uh, However, as Richard just said, two or three of them when interviewed by Dr. John Mack, were very, very specific. And we're talking young children here, okay? When John Mack asked him the question, how did you interact with these beings? Did you talk to them? And they said no. And then John Mack asked, well, how did they talk to you? And without question, the children, three of the children respond, in my mind. And John didn't try to lead them. We said, well, what do you mean in your mind? I just received words in my mind about us not taking care of the planet and that we have to take care of the planet better and that our technology is taking over and that we have to be careful with the technology. And he kept on asking them, how did you get this information? And it was through some sort of telepathic communication. But John never found out any information indicating that these children were taken. So that's my response to your first, uh, the first part of your question. The second part, <laughs> do I think that God is an extraterrestrial? Um, I'll, I'll take that one. Piece, uh, how long was a piece of string, Kathy? You go right ahead, Richard. Take that one. Well, yeah, uh, yeah I, I mean, he is of extraterrestrial origin. He is not of this world, but he, you know, he's not an you know an alien, if that's what you mean. I don't subscribe to the ancient alien theory myself. There's some discussion as to whether in the Catholic Church it seems to have held open the possibility that uh, you know if there are extraterrestrials, they are part of God's creation, so that there's nothing anti-biblical or, uh, you know, that necessarily mm-hmm. argues against the biblical narrative in order to believe in extraterrestrials. But I don't believe that God is a, an E.T. or Jesus is an E.T., except that they are not of this world, but they're not, you know, from another planet, if that's what you're asking. Mm-hmm. But thank you for the yeah. call. Yeah. Not Gordo asks uh, if I've ever been to any UFO crash sites during my travels. You know, I have not. And I have to, you know, admit, I'm not, I'm not a boots-on-the-ground investigator researcher i'm uh, i'm first and foremost a broadcaster i talk to the people that visit crash sites uh, how about you victor well i have been to the corona crash site in new mexico and most people who you know have any kind of cursory knowledge about the the the, the roswell incident ascribe the the whole incident as the rush as the crash at roswell it didn't happen at roswell it happened in a small farming community in corona new mexico and it's a very small town. It's there's a, you know a couple of stores, there's a couple of bars, a, you know that that kind of thing. There's it's it's a very very small place. But if if you move forward out of there 
two or three miles, you uh, move into where the um, where the ranch was, the Brazil Ranch, and uh, you can drive off road into the area where it's purported that this particular craft uh, did crash. And I have I have been there. I've driven up the the dirt road, the, the arroyos that are there, the small hills, uh, in, in you know close to Corona. Uh, there's really not a whole lot to see. I didn't go on any kind of uh, archaeological digs at all, but I did go to the place where the crash purportedly did happen. I also um, had a, a communication with uh, Loretta Proctor, who was uh, a friend of Max Brazel, who was actually in the the debris field. Uh, in, in, on his farm, on the farm that he was in charge of as a manager. And uh, what Loretta Proctor told me is that uh, Mac Brazel, after the incident, got, was on his horse looking around and got a piece of this material, brought it back uh, to his house, uh, looked at it uh, and did whatever he had to do with it, and then brought it over to her place, uh, cl- what, quite close to him. And she actually saw the material, and it was, uh, uh, you know, very, very... Uh, Aluminum-like, very um, uh, the, the tensile strength to it. You couldn't put any holes in it. And then after that, Max brought the material to the uh, the Cat Mountain uh, Inn at in, right in Corona, and they placed it on the bar. They placed this stuff on the bar and tried to drive nails through this stuff with a hammer. And there's no, they just could not do anything to the material. So, um, you know, I have that as firsthand conversation with these with with Loretta Proctor, and I have to trust that she's being authentic about it. Uh, I, there, there's no reason to believe that uh, Loretta would make this kind of stuff up. So, uh, it, it does indicate um, that 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 there is something that something really did crash there, and that uh, it has to be taken seriously. There's just no doubt about Absolutely. it. Absolutely. All right. Uh, thank you for that. Uh, and we will take another time out, come back, and finish up. Victor Vigiani, Zeland News Network, talking the phenomenon documentary and UFO disclosure. Back with more in a moment. Fasten your seatbelt and put your tray in the upright position. You're about to leave everything you know behind on The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. A quick programming note. Next week, Rocco Galati, uh, if you've been following his uh, exploits, Rocco is an attorney and he has been uh, uh, fighting in court against uh, lockdowns and uh, the uh, apparent or not apparent, it's obvious erosion of civil liberties uh, during the... uh, the uh, the case demic as some call it uh rocco galati will be uh, here next week live for the full two hours and i hope you can be on board uh, for this one it's uh, I, I i sincerely believe one of the more important one of the most important uh, programs i've done to date rocco galati for the full two hours uh, victor vigiani is uh, with us and um we will get back to the uh the couple of youtube uh, live chat questions here in a moment um, I wanted to go back to James Fox film, The Phenomenon, and ask you uh, that um, part of the film dealing with after the the, um, the collapse of communism and uh, my coast-to-coast colleague George Knapp was invited to go to Moscow and, and investigate, and he spoke with military personnel on that side uh, and was sort of echoing what was happening at nuclear air force bases – or sorry, nuclear bases over here, uh, particularly in the United States. But there's something that's kind of 
was kind of gnawing at me. And that is while in the U.S. at Malmstrom and Minot and uh, Ellsworth uh, Air, Air Force bases, the UFOs were turning the missiles off. They were taking them offline. But there was at least one incident in Ukraine at a nuclear base where they had they had triggered the launch signal. In other words, they turned it on. That doesn't sound to me like they were trying to avert nuclear war. That almost sounds like they were up to mischief. They were trying to cause something. I mean, the... The uh, the personnel in Ukraine had to scramble. You can imagine the panic. They see the countdown has begun on these missiles. What did you think about that? Well, yeah, I I, I um in watching that whole thing, uh, I forget the uh, the Russian individual. It began with an M, but in any case, it was a, <clears throat> a Russian individual. Um, it, it, whether they're turned on or off, uh, that 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 is definitely an issue. Uh, you know, the the launch commanders in the United States is indicated, um, as, as well as visits to Renaissance Force in, in the UK, that there was some sort of um, interference with nuclear weapons. Um, the the turning on of these things uh, in the Ukraine um, indicate to me, in a similar way, uh, whatever the these craft are, these intelligent craft uh, under intelligent control are. I, I don't know whether turning them on or turning them off is the issue as far as I'm, I'm trying to assess this, um, you know, in a, in a holistic way. What I think is really being pointed to here, Richard, is that um, they have control of the situation and they are telling us or the, the people who are in charge of these of these nuclear weapons that they have control and they can turn them on or turn them off. I don't have any doubt that there's no reason for them to turn these things on to, you know, to start a nuclear event. I, I don't think that was their intention, because even if they did turn them on, they probably understood that whoever's in charge of these missile silos could turn them off. And this this happened, uh, you know, within the the the, the Malmstrom situation too. They went offline and they brought them back online on their own. I, I think what happened there. Just I'm just speculating. It's my own assumption. That they, that whoever these beings are that are coming into the airspace are saying to us, we have control of, over what you're doing. So don't mess around with these things because if you do decide to engage in some sort of nuclear event, we can control whatever you do. So just let's just not fool around with this stuff. Well, perhaps, uh, perhaps, yeah, except. Yeah, I, I'm not sure what else, what other conclusion you can come to. Uh, yeah. You may have another. Well, I. I uh, well, I, I come back to that word mischief because, you know, as right. James mm-hmm. Fox points out in, in the film and he shows there's a chart there. He shows the number number of nuclear uh, tests that have been conducted mm-hmm. by, all you know, not only the United States, but also uh, the Soviet Union. And I believe uh, China and, and uh, many other countries have, have tested their, you know, where were the. Where were the UFOs then? Where were they in in August of 1945 right. when two of them were used? That, that's always puzzled me. I don't have the answer, yeah, right. but, but well, I just find that kind of a puzzle. Yeah, I, one of the things that comes to mind uh, or that has come to mind uh, to me with respect to all of the nuclear types of incidents is not just what is happening with each individual case, but it also indicates to me that there may be a, a number of species that are involved in these kinds of activities. 
So if you have, let's call them species one, does one thing with these nuclear um, assets, and species two does another thing with these nuclear assets, uh, I think sometimes we um, are, are, are overridden by the assumption that there is one species doing these things. My sense is that, uh, and the information we have from a number of, of contactees, that there are a realm, a whole broad spectrum of species that interact with us. Now, whether their craft are all the same, whether they're different, wh whatever that might be. But there's not just one species interacting. So if that's the case, if there are a number of species interacting with us, they each may have a different agenda in whatever kind of messaging that they are putting in place to talk to us about the nuclear um, about the nuclear situation that we're in. So any one of them could do any number of things to do whatever they want with the with these nuclear assets to get send us a message. It's much like you know what, Richard. It's much like the uh, uh, the crop the crop circle um, uh, situation. Yeah, I've seen so many beautiful uh, um, uh, kind of uh, indications that these crop circles are a form of language for us or to us about who these beings might be. And it, the, 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 the category of languages that are involved in the way these, these crop formations are formed indicates to me that there are a number of species involved in sending us messages about who they are, why they're here, and, and, and what they want to try to say to us um, uh, as, as earthlings, as beings on this planet. So there's a number of messages that are coming down the pipe. So I don't think we can kind of just say that one thing is happening about the nuclear uh, incident that says, yeah, it's just one species doing this. I think there's a, there's a whole number of variables involved right, in right. all and of they, this. And, and uh, which begs the question, you know, what is their intent? And there, there, seems, to exactly. be, there exactly. seems to be intentions that are at cross purposes. Uh, go back to the YouTube live chat. Jay Lee asks, have any of the African school children created enduring interests or careers that followed the incident. This would be the aerial school in Zimbabwe mm -hmm. in '94. Uh, do you know of any children that went yeah. on to pursue sort of a, an interest in UFOs? Well, n not specifically with UFOs as, as researchers, but I know that um, um, I'm thinking back now to the actual film. I'm trying to think back in my mind. Uh, they were sitting around a table, and I think there were four individuals. One of whom was wearing a Toronto Blue Jays sweater. That's I wonder, right. Yes. Uh, is that a local exactly. connection, or yes, there is, and that's baseball? another. That's another story altogether, which we can get into at some point. Uh, but I know that um, the four individuals that I saw around the table, one of them was a teacher, uh, still involved in it. One of them was a social worker, and another one was um, some sort of medical. Um, it wasn't a doctor or anything like that, but a, a medical practitioner of some kind. Um, but they've all been involved in some sort of social aspect uh, of this that it involves them with people who might may have had experiences or may have had some sort of involvement uh, in sort of the sociological you know interaction with uh, with people. So uh, it, it, none of them were sort of bank accountants or anything like that, as far as I know. But they, the three of them, I know for a fact, were involved in some sort of social, um, social careers that uh, brought them involved with people who, who may be open to whole to the whole aspect of of uh, the alien encounter. All right, Jay Lee, thank you for that question, and Victor, thank you for these two hours. How do people uh, get out, get on to uh, Zealand News Network? Well, all you have to do is uh, just put in the the search engine Zealand Communications. Uh, and you just you'll come upon the uh, the blog uh, that we have, 
and we've posted uh, a number of things over the past little while uh, zlandcommunications.com uh, and you just, just go there and there's a wealth of information and news uh, news releases and other kinds of things that uh, editorials I've just put out a couple of editorials recently so uh, uh, we, we depend on that to uh, begin the education process for people who are open to it alright Victor thank you my friend until uh, next time it's been a pleasure thank you my thanks to Ryan and Carlos back next week. Rocco Galati for the full two hours. And uh, in the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark speak in light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Or at least up the stairs. Good night. <laughs>